Season 2, Episode 3 of the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. This week, we have an international flavor to the show with two very special guests. Firstly, we chat to Susie Buttress from England. Susie is the host of the Casual Birder Podcast, which encourages people of all experience levels to appreciate birds wherever they are found. She shares about her podcast as well as giving us insights into her style of birding. We then chat to Freya McGregor, an Australian who lives in the United States. She tells us all about the Birdability Project that looks to make birding accessible to more people, especially people with disabilities. This is a great episode that I know you will enjoy. So sit back and enjoy. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser Bird Logging app. Spot, plot, play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other. Amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously where to find amazing birds. Check out our website at www.thebirdinglife.com, our YouTube channel, our various social media platforms, as well as the other podcasts we host. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others find the show. So let us get into this week's episode of the Birding Life Podcast. So Susie Buttress is a lifelong birder and has been fortunate to have traveled and watched birds on every continent. Her podcast, the Casual Birder Podcast, encourages people of all experiences to appreciate birds wherever they are found. While Susie is not an expert, her show features interviews with those that are. In her show, Susie shares her observations and field recordings, speaks to other enthusiasts, and tells stories from bird watchers around the world. So Susie, I want to welcome you to the Bird Enough podcast. Thank you, Adam. It's so nice to be speaking with you. It's always scary speaking to other podcasters because, yeah, you guys are like, you're such a fantastic host and that, and I love your podcast. It's really, uh, it's really great to listen to. So we spoke about the beginning and the fact that you are the host of the Casual Birder podcast. So firstly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as well as about your show? Yeah, well, um, I'm, uh, as you said, a lifelong birder, but not an expert birder. So it's just watching birds and looking at birds has just been something that I've absolutely adored doing all my life. I guess... I was a podcast listener first for over 10 years. I've enjoyed podcasts and I never thought I would have my own show. But um, I started to think I, I wanted to share some of the stories I was hearing about birds. And I also wanted to tell people about the birds I was seeing and try to encourage people to find joy in nature. And um, it just seemed the perfect choice to start a podcast. I could share recordings and speak about the birds I was seeing it would encourage me to go out and do more birding because I can be quite lazy and not actually get out there. And also it gave me the opportunity to speak to people who are real experts about all aspects of birding. And so my knowledge has increased along with the people that listen to the show. So I, I kind of feel like I'm bringing them on a journey with me. One of the things I'm very aware of is that my audience, uh, some of the people that listen are brand new birders. They're just starting out in birding and others are real experts. And I really love the fact that people seem to find something in my show that they enjoy, but that I can start them on a track and then they can 
end up much more experienced than I am. You know, I'm sort of helping them start their journey, but I understand that they'll leave me behind at some point because they'll go on to bigger and better things. But we're all joined together by our love of birding. So many of the birds you share are birds that you see in England. So why do you think that international listeners would enjoy the show? I guess I'm thinking that they are like me. I'm thinking my listeners are like me. I like hearing about birds that other people see. And it, if, it's, if it's birds in other countries, then I hope that some point I will actually go and visit those countries and see those birds myself. But there's just something about hearing someone speak with passion or speak with real interest about birds they see. And so even though I'm talking about maybe, you know, my, my, my little birds in my garden might seem a bit of a lowly thing to talk about, but they bring me joy. They bring me um, lots and lots of interest. And I've learned so much more about the birds that I see regularly um, by doing the show and by observing the birds. And I hope that the interest that I give in my show, the, the information I give, the, the passion that I share, that sparks something in the listener. And, um, and I've been lucky enough to have people from around the world listening to the show and then sharing their birds that they're seeing in their gardens or their birds that they're seeing on their walks. And it really brings you together with other people around the world that although for each of us, we have our local birds and at times you can feel that it's a little, maybe a little boring when you're hearing about all exotic birds. But when you start to really look at them, there's so much to see and so much to learn. And we're all united. You know, we all, we all think our birds, at times we all think our birds are boring and other people's birds are exotic, but because I'm connected with people around the world, they're thinking that about my birds and I'm thinking that about their birds. So you know, we're all connecting. Yeah, we were just saying before the podcast, I want to come over to the UK and I really want to see puffins. So that's like one of those birds that there's probably birds you want to see in South Africa. But yeah, that love of birds just connects us. And I'm always amazed. I'm sure you're amazed also when you go look at your analytics and you start looking at the places that your podcast is reaching. It's, it's actually amazing how far these podcasts actually reach in the world. Yeah, I mean, obviously, my my show is an English language show, and so that will predominantly be places that are, um, you know, English speaking will will enjoy that. But uh, I also think that hopefully my show has a nice sort of tone about it. That if someone was learning English, it would be a, a handy show to listen to because although I'm speaking fairly quickly here, generally on my show I speak. Uh, quite slowly. And um, I think hopefully that means that people could listen if it was a learning, you know, learning the language show. So there are many terms that people use to describe themselves in the world of birding, bird watchers, birders, twitchers, and a whole lot of other terms they use. However, you describe yourself as a casual birder. What does this mean? So I wanted to find a term that meant that you didn't have to be an expert to watch birds. I wanted it to be a term that would encourage people to listen to the show and not feel daunted by it, not feel overawed by how much they should know before they even listen. And casual might not be quite the right word, uh, but the only other words I could think of were a little derogatory, things like the lazy birder and um, the can't be bothered birder, <laughs> things like that. And uh, I didn't want to put a negative spin on, on the words. Basically, I am the sort of person who just loves being in an area where there are birds and just sitting and watching them. So I'm, I don't go rushing around the country to see birds in particular areas. I do travel around a little bit to see other birds. But my most favorite kind of birding day would be to be somewhere where I can hear lots of birds. I know they're around 
And if I sit quietly, they'll likely come out and show themselves. And so I can sit for hours just watching birds moving through foliage, starting to show themselves, watching them interact with each other, hearing their calls, their little contact noises. That that to me is the best kind of day where I'm just sitting somewhere close to facilities so I can go and take bathroom breaks, but somewhere where I can just be and watch and listen. And that for me is like my perfect birding day. So I wanted to kind of share that with people to let them know that you didn't have to be like a traditional, um, you know, everyone's seen those stereotypes of birders represented in media and it can put people off a little bit if that's not your style to feel like well I've got to have the latest scope and I've got to be traveling all around the country to see this one bird with you know big groups of other people if your style is to sit on your own and just listen and watch you might feel like well I can't call myself a birder because I I don't do the things other people do so I I, that's why I called it the casual birder I thought this way people can know that they can just look out the window while they're doing the washing up or, you know, while they're on their way, maybe at the bus stop waiting for the bus in the morning, you know, and they can look around and just note the birds that they see then. Birds can be part of our lives, even when we're having to do the other chores. I love what you said on your website, and this is just a quote which I copied. It says, birding is a great pastime. It can be done with others or alone. You don't need expensive equipment. Your eyes or ears are enough. And, you know, that just goes against so much of what is happening in much of the modern day birding movement at the moment. So I still stand by that, my, my, my quote there, because that is at the heart of making birding available for everyone. Everyone that, you know, uh, when I say everyone, obviously if um, you have some challenges with vision or hearing, that, that doesn't quite work. But um, you don't have to spend hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands of pounds on equipment. You don't have to have the equipment. Now, I do have binoculars and I do have a zoom camera and I do have a scope but while I take the binoculars and camera out with me quite a lot I don't use my scope very often and I don't have to have them it's just that I'm short-sighted and so if I do want to see the birds closer um, obviously I want my binoculars but it's perfectly possible to just sit in a field or sit at the edge of a woodland or just sit on a bench somewhere looking over the coast it's perfectly possible to see birds yes optics will bring them closer and give you more detail. And I'm I'm quite a fan of starting off with quite cheap optics. And I know that the quality of image isn't as fabulous as it is with the really expensive optics, but it's a start and it brings things a little bit closer to you. And that can just help you. So that's another reason I'm a fan of feeding birds where it's legal and possible to do so. It just brings birds closer to you. So, you know, if you're watching birds in your garden, you don't need binoculars. Generally, they're close enough that you can see them. Taking photographs of birds, I I generally do as record shots, just so that, you know, if I want to try to see a bird a little bit better later on, if I'm not sure of the ID and I want to just check some of the the plumage details. But, um, But, you know, people spend hours and hours producing fantastic photographs. They're works of art. That's not me. And in my Facebook group, I encourage people to post the pictures that they take. And we don't have to have gallery standard pictures. If you've seen a bird that you love and you really were pleased that you saw it and you want to take a photograph, just share the photograph and no one will criticize you for it. But to go back to what you originally said, yes, I believe that it's getting out there, listening and watching, even without the additional aids you can still find joy in that. And so don't feel that, you know, you need to have lots of money to take part in birding. It's not true. You, you can just go out there, go out into your neighborhood and find birds. 
So I know that Bridget Butler's slow burning approach that we covered on episode 68 of the podcast struck a chord with you and I can really see the similarities between your two approaches. I know after I heard Bridget's approach, it really just changed so much of the way that I bird it. I was so, um, I, I really wish I'd come up with that term slow birding because <laughs> when I was trying to think of, um, you know, how can I, how can I talk about the style of birding that I have? Uh, listening to Bridget, you know, that's exactly how I feel. Um, but she's clearly, you know, she's been developing her style for some time and, and she's an expert birder. So, you know, she's got this wonderful program that she can teach. But I, it really resonated with me. I, I really do appreciate that whole idea of just slowing down. It's a real mental health thing as well. You know, it, focusing on the birds, sitting, watching, really noticing them. Not only are you teaching yourself about their behavior, about how they look, but you're focusing on things other than yourself. And for me, that can be a real mind clearer. Um, that can be really calming. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why I love birding so much and looking at birds. So the modern day world is so busy for many people. It's filled with pressures, deadlines, and demands. So how does one stay connected to nature in the midst of all the craziness of life? For me, the real key thing is to well, I'm constantly looking out of the window. So uh, I would have been terrible at school if I'd had a, a window that looked out onto a lawn or something. Um, but yeah, whenever I'm doing anything around the house, the first thing I do is look out the window, see what's going on out there. I'm not so good to act, act, at actually getting outside. I, I, I must say I, I do a lot of window watching of birds and having the podcast has kind of made me go outside more because I want to gather recordings to, to share with my listeners. Um, but I really think that noticing the natural world while you're going about the things you do. So while I'd, I'd love you all to be listening to podcasts while you're waiting at the bus stop or while you're walking around out in the streets, sometimes just take those earbuds out and listen to what birds are around you because that's nature. That's nature there. Even in the urban environment, nature is there. And taking a moment to watch butterflies on flowers or watch bees or listen to the bird song, that connects you back with nature. And if you're fortunate enough to live somewhere where, you know, you're not in an urban environment when you're in the countryside, that's just, you know, that's just, that's just wonderful. I've, I've recently spent a couple of weekends away staying in cottages where that's exactly the environment and it feeds my soul so much. I really wish I lived somewhere like that because being able to step outside and actually hear birdsong and not traffic is a wonderful privilege and it, it's great that I'm able to do it for a holiday, but I, I really, I really would love it if that was where I lived all the time. But, you know, for those of us that live in a, an urban environment, noticing the birds that are around us, noticing that they survive and they've adapted and they, they have worked alongside us. The trees are, are little islands in the urban environment and just watching what goes on, it just really connects you back to the natural world. So on a practical level, how does your approach look? So I'm personally, I'm always either looking out the window or out in the garden. If I'm out, if I'm out walking anywhere, even if it's just walking to the shops, I'm listening for birds. I'm looking for birds. I'm always aware of what birds might be around. If I'm on a road trip, I'm looking across the fields to birds. I'm looking out for birds. I'm always looking for birds, basically. So whatever I'm doing, birds feature there. So if I'm outside of the house in any way, I'm listening and looking. And whatever chores I'm doing inside the house, I'm listening for birds. So birds are just always there, really. 
So just lastly, you know, you've spoken about how this approach has worked and you've spoken about the practical side. So let's talk about your observations. So um, at the time we recorded this episode in South Africa, we've just moved into spring, which means in the Northern Hemisphere, you have just moved into autumn or fall, as the Americans would say. So what changes have you noticed in your garden as you have, as you have observed birds? So just over the last month, we had had like a very quiet period. Towards the end of summer, the birds stopped visiting quite so much. It always happens. I'm guessing there's a lot of natural food available outside in the, in the farm fields or whatever. And so they don't need to be in the garden as much. But just in the last couple of weeks, I've noticed the small flocks of birds starting to come back again and the flocks mixing together. So little blue tits, great tits, the goldfinches, coal tits occasionally there, they're, they're traveling through with the long tail tits. So those sort of birds I don't always see all the time during the summer have started to show themselves. And I know that we're going to sh- soon have the thrushes coming over from, from Northern Europe. So last year, there were um, a big flock of red wings, which is a type of thrush, um, in some trees that lined a road just that I can see from my house. So, um, you know, knowing that they're only going to be there for a few months, but I get the opportunity to see them. That actually got me to go out and go on walks because I wanted to go out and see those, those winter thrushes. And I also know that, you know, if I, if I take a trip to the coast, um, now is the time when lots of geese are arriving from Europe. So there's a chance to see lots of geese that you wouldn't normally see. Uh, and I'm trying to learn more about waders and, and shorebirds because that's something that I don't see very often and I tend to feel a bit daunted by. But this year I've made more of an effort to, to get to know wading birds. So it's challenging yourself, you know, finding maybe a species of bird that you can find is in an area. Use eBird to see what's been spotted or what historically has been spotted in the month that you're you're visiting, and then um, find out about it, read up about it, and then get yourself educated before you go to an area, so that you have much more chance of spotting a new bird. Looking at the autumn birds and knowing that they're they're on migration now, we're losing some of our summer birds, but we have got the birds that will come on winter here, and it's to take pleasure in in seeing them as well and to learn about the migration. My goodness, the journeys that they travel to get here and the things they go through. It's just um, just amazing. So Susie, it's been really great to chat to you. Uh, I want to really encourage our listeners to follow you on social media. Also, listen to the podcast. I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's uh, it's really, it's like therapy. It's just so relaxing and it's, it's such a great podcast. I will pop all the links into the uh, comment section of this uh, of this episode so on the notes of this episode rather so yeah be sure to check it out and Susie thanks for your time I really appreciate it thanks so much Adam thank you for listening to this week's episode we really hope you are enjoying the episode if you would like to support us and help grow the show please can we ask that you do two things firstly please share the show on your favorite social media channel Tell us why you enjoy the show and be sure to tag us in the post. This is one of the best ways to help get the word out about the podcast and bring more exposure to the guests that are featured and the conservation issues that are covered. Secondly, to help us cover the costs and to improve the quality of the show, please can you consider buying us a virtual coffee or two? This is a quick, safe and easy way to contribute to the show. You will find a link for this in the notes of the show. Okay, so Freya McGregor is the Birdability Coordinator, and I want to just welcome you to the show. It's good to have you. Thanks so much for having me. 
So just as a disclaimer before we start this part of the interview, in South Africa where I live, there's been uh, power outages. So if the sound is not fantastic, I'm sitting in my office at work and it's a little bit echoey. So I do apologize, but I really believe it's going to be a fantastic episode. So yeah, we're going to chat all about birdability and hear all about this year. So like I already mentioned in the intro, you are the birdability coordinator. So tell us what birdability is. So Birdability is a brand new nonprofit. We're based in the US, uh, although I'm Australian, so I think our work um, covers everybody. We're all about sharing the joys of birding with people who have disabilities and other health concerns. So I'm going to ask you a question. You know, we're living in uh, quite a modern age, and I want to ask this question. Do you really feel that there's a need to push for inclusivity in birding? Surely in this day and age, birding is accessible to anyone. Yeah, you'd like to think so. And I think a lot of birders think that because it is has been accessible to them. Um, but yeah, not everyone can go birding as easily as, as somebody else. So there's a whole lot of factors that might go into this. Um, people who have different skin color, people who uh, might be LGBTQIA+, women birders. There's a lot of different social factors that might impact someone's feeling of safety um, and whether they feel welcome and included going out on organized bird outings or being a member of a bird club or even just going birding by themselves in different places. There can be things that other people do that make them not feel safe and therefore they're make, it's making birding inaccessible to them in that way. A lot of our work, as well as addressing the idea of welcoming and inclusive birders, is also about the physical accessibility of birding locations. So in the US, there's this legislation called the Americans with Disabilities Act. I know that there's similar legislation in Australia. Uh, I'm sure there is in a lot of other countries where public buildings are supposed to have things like ramps, if, if there's steps so that anyone using a wheelchair or having another um, kind of mobility challenge can get into the building. And th there's a whole, co whole lot of different things to do with the physical, the built environment that can make locations more or less accessible. And there are plenty of birding locations that say, oh, we have an accessible trail. And then you get there and you discover there's a giant rock in the way um, at the start of the, at the trailhead. And that might be so they're trying to avoid golf carts or four-wheel motorbikes going down that trail. But it also means that folks using power wheelchairs or um, a walking frame can't get down that trail either. So, and there's a whole stack of different things that go into the physical accessibility of birding locations. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of work to be done. You wrote a fascinating article for Audubon and this, and I'll actually put the link for the article in the notes of this episode. And you said the following, language matters. As birders, the words we use signal what we value. To nurture a community as wonderfully diverse as the birds we love, we need to ensure that our language is as welcoming and inclusive as possible. One easy way to do this is to redefine birding and who a birder is. Talk us through the statement. Yeah, so um, as an Australian living in the US, I've had to make quite a few little word swaps in my everyday language just to be more clearly understood by the people I'm communicating with here. And this is kind of one of those ideas. So back home in Australia, um, people talk about being bird watchers. I remember my parents are birders, oh, bird watchers. They call themselves bird watchers. And I asked them and I, when I was a teenager and they said, oh no, birder is very American and, and 
you know, that's fine. We're just not American. In the US, there's been a historical sort of distinction between a birder and a bird watcher. Birders are seen as the folks who are like listers and chasers and twitchers who, you know, drive 17 hours just to find that one vagrant and um, who really focused on keeping a list. The, and it's seen as more superior, like somehow that's a better form of um, enjoying birds. I disagree. I don't think it's worse. It's just not better. It's just one of the many ways. Bird watcher has been seen as the more sort of casual, taking it slow, maybe backyard um, birding. Lots of um, folks in, in North America have feeders out in their backyards. And, and it's been seen in this sort of way as, as less legitimate, which I think is ridiculous. So the premise of that article is that if we all were just birders, as a starting point. Of course, there are different kinds of birders, um, like listers and casual birders and all different kinds. But if we all just described ourselves as birders, and if birding was redefined as the act of enjoying wild birds, then inherently we are going to be a more welcoming and inclusive community because we're removing that hierarchy. Um, I've seen so many people, when I share this definition, I've seen so many people respond like, oh, wow, thanks. Now I can call myself a birder. Like as if they needed permission to do that. Like that's crazy. There's no qualification to like be a birder as against being a bird watcher. Like that's, that shouldn't be how we're operating and we shouldn't be we shouldn't be sending the message that there's a more superior way of enjoying birds because there's no wrong way to do it and and every way you do it is just as valid so that's that's the uh, that's the idea behind that behind that work well, in last week's episode, I had a chat to um, David Allen, and we were talking about some of the challenges um, to getting more people into ornithology and that and one of the things that we touched on were social economic challenges. And I can imagine when it comes to this whole idea, you know, when you look at what a birder looks like, the modern day birder looks like, it's a guy with a, a nice camera, a guy with a nice set of binoculars, Sarovsky or Zeiss or something like that, um, normally got a decent car and he's got a, his life just is growing. And, you know, possibly even the way that the modern day birder has you know, almost the stereotype probably has become a stumbling block, which has stopped a lot of people from getting into birding. Because the old days, you just could bird with a, you know, have a field guide and a, and a pair of binoculars and you were A for away. Where nowadays, it's like you, if you don't have all the stuff, all the trappings of modern day birding, you're not seen as a real birder. Yeah. And that's exactly um, what I'm trying to push against with this. Um, I also noticed that you said he and a lot of um, traditional, I wouldn't say modern day, I think we're changing, but um, the traditional image of a birder is, is a male, a white male often, uh, who's able-bodied and probably straight and cisgender as well. And I mean, that, sure, there's plenty of birders who are like that. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. There's just a whole lot of birders who have disabilities and who are BIPOC and who are LGBTQIA+, and who are female and younger and maybe not incredibly affluent. And also, by the way, there's plenty of birders who are blind or have low vision and they might not use binoculars and that doesn't make them any less of a birder. Binoculars are not required. And if we can, um, they're just a tool, they're a helpful tool, but they're not necessary. And if we can also try and, you know, reduce that reliance um, <laughs> on, that, on that piece of equipment, then people who can't afford binoculars or who can't afford really expensive binoculars might feel more welcome to participate in this hobby as well. 
So you've spoken about earlier a couple of hindrances, and but what are some practical things that can be done to make birding areas more accessible for people with disabilities and other health concerns? Oh, there's a whole lot of different things. I would refer folks to the BirdAbility website. There's a um, page up there called Access Considerations, and that has a whole lot of information about these different accessibility features of birding locations. But things like making sure there are ramps that are the appropriate gradient or slope. Um, If they're too steep, they're just as inaccessible as a whole stack of steps. Making sure there's parking spaces and um, folks who who, for example, use um, vans because maybe, so the, the BirdAbility founder, um, Virginia Rose, she has a spinal cord injury and uses a manual wheelchair. She also drives um, and her van though, it has a ramp that comes out the side uh, and that's how she gets in and out of her van. And if there isn't a van accessible parking space with like, it's like extra wide or it has like a side aisle that people aren't supposed to park in, that's so that she can get her ramp out and actually get in and out of a van. If she can't do that, it doesn't matter how accessible the trail is. She she needs to be able to get to the trail in the first place. So parking's like the first thing. Things like having benches along the path. Folks like me, I have a dodgy knee. Being able to sit is really helpful. Um, People with chronic fatigue or maybe multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's or any kind of different thing. Often benches are really, really helpful. Many benches too, not just one or two here and there. Things like the interpretive signs, if they're out, you know, explaining about the birds or the landscape, um, there's a whole lot that can go into making sure a sign is really accessible. Good contrast between the text and the background, maybe a tactile component so folks can feel the sign and engage with it that way if that's um, helpful or important to them. Even having an audio piece with the sign, so someone who's totally blind or has a print disability or there's a whole lot of different people who could benefit from having audio to go along with the sign and making sure the sign's at the right height so that someone who's seated in a wheelchair, for example, can actually read it. Um, there's, there's heaps of stuff that can be done to make birding locations more accessible. And you don't have to have it all completely perfect. Like even just if you're in charge of a nature center or somewhere, just doing bit by bit, like that's really helpful. And the more we can do, the, the more people we can invite in to these places to um, get outside and enjoy birds. This is something that is very close to my heart because my mother um, used a wheelchair in the latter part of her life. So this is really something that would be very close to my heart. But I can imagine one of the challenges would be, and we were, I was chatting to Tyron, who's part of our team just before this, and he, he fully agrees and fully endorses what, you know, making birding areas more accessible for people with disabilities. But the one thing he brought up, which is probably a good point, there would might be some areas which are environmentally sensitive where, you know, making certain changes might have a positive impact for the people to be able to access it but access it but it also possibly could have a bit of a negative impact to the environment is there is there a way that 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 is balanced out yeah it's a really good question so one thing that i will say at the start is we're not trying to make every single birding location a thousand percent accessible because that would kind of be ridiculous like we're not talking about having perfectly graded paved paths up like mountains and things like that. Another thing though is actually there's been research done about the impacts of making a location more accessible to folks who have access needs and how that impacts the local ecology. Often having a paved path that's appropriately wide enough or a wooden boardwalk Um, actually is really helpful for that local environment because when the path is not so clearly kind of defined, 
People all the time are wandering off the path and like making their own trails and traipsing wherever they want to. And that's really bad often. Um, but when it's such an obvious path, like here is the concrete path, here is the wooden boardwalk, people tend to stay exactly where they're supposed to. And so this research has found that very often um, actually making a trail more accessible has positive impacts on on that ecosystem too, which is really cool. It benefits the people and it benefits the place as well. So what are the, some of the success stories that you've had since you've started Birdability? Oh, okay. Well, so we have this really awesome network of um, volunteers. We call them Birdability Captains. And a lot of what we do is trying to empower them to do this sort of work in their own communities because there's me and there's Virginia, our founder, and we're only two people in two places and there's so much work to be done. But these birdability captains have done a whole lot of really cool stuff, encouraging their local bird clubs and Audubon chapters to um, have closed captions in any of their Zoom webinars and meetings. Um, we, I know that National Audubon and the American Bird Conservancy and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, three really big bird-related organizations in North America, they've all started doing image descriptions on their social media posts, which is something that we've been advocating for. Um, so folks who are blind or have low vision can access what is being presented visually. Their screen reader technology can't read a photo, so you have to have words for the screen reader to understand. We've seen some really great improvements of inaccessible trails uh, all over the US. Uh, we've had the Birdability map is a crowdsourced map that is international. Anyone can contribute a Birdability site review to the map. It, you just doc, it's, it's like a survey that you do and it documents the accessibility of a birding location, just sort of reporting what is there so that folks who need, for example, a bunch of benches or who need shade because they're like super um, sensitive to the sun can find that information out ahead of time before they go to a birding location. The birdability map has more than 800 sites pinned to it, which is really cool. That's so much more information for more people to find out about. More successes. Uh, let's see. Well, birdability week is coming up um, October the 18th to the 24th. We have um, all these amazing events, planned panels and webinars and workshops and online uh, social media prompts and um, we've had just so much positive engagement. We've done presentations at bird festivals and to bird clubs and all these different nature-related groups. And so many people have said, thank you so much. I now feel seen and heard as a birder with an access challenge. Like that's right there. Those those comments, that's absolutely what we're trying to do. That's a massive success for us. And then the other thing we hear a lot of is, um, from non-disabled folks saying, thank you so much. I wanted to be more inclusive, but I didn't know how. Thank you for giving me the tools. That's awesome. That's amazing. So lastly, what I'll do is I'll pop all the links for uh, links for birdability in the notes of this episode. But obviously, you've spoken about the fact that you are based in the US. Um, if people from other countries wish to get connected to birdability, is there a way that they can start up initiatives in their own parts of the world? Yeah, yeah. So um, we actually have a birdability captain in Canada, in Argentina, and in Chile. Uh, and we would love to have birdability captains all over the world. I mean, as an Australian living in the US, this is it's so obvious to me that this is an international effort. Um, so yeah, um, get in touch with us if you want to be engaged um, as a birdability captain. 
we'd love to have you uh, on board. And yeah, this work is is needed uh, wherever there are people and birds, which is everywhere. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books Online Store to help get all the best birding and nature books into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link either in the comment section of this podcast or our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Don't forget to follow The Birding Life on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Bird Lesser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a lifeless while playing your part in social conservation, as well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.